we stand and sit in this place. Lord, where there has been singing and prayer for many, many years. Where the gospel has been proclaimed and people have heard good news. We stand and sit in this place where there have been celebrations of baptisms and weddings and celebrations of life and funerals. And we come into this place and we were reminded last week of its history and we come into this place and it is a reminder to us that the tomb is empty. As Julie reminds us, this does not leave us in a secure position. In fact, resurrection can be fearful for some because we've known only a world of death. It can leave us nervous and apprehensive because we've only known a world where we've attempted to control. It can leave us, uh, it can leave us in doubt and in skepticism because we live in a world where dead people do not come back to life. But as it seems that you are uh, about the work of new life and resurrection, may we open our eyes to what is taking place. And in opening our hearts, may we uh, open our eyes, may we open our hearts as well to this God who is actively resurrecting things all around us and establishing new life all around us. We're thankful for those who care for our children. And we ask that you would bring a resolve, that you would provide every need, and that you would meet our needs. And while the world is watching, they would be able to see that this has come to conclusion with full resource, and yet the peace that passes all understanding for all parties. Would you unite people in our city, and would you unite people in our state, And would we find that you are the one who is to be glorified? We think of the times in which our city and our state has dealt with devastating events. And you have uh, drawn people to yourself and revealed yourself to them. And we ask that you would do that even in this time and in our day. This is what we hope for. And this is what we pray for. And we do it now in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. And amen. Tonight we're going to continue reading in um, the book of Ephesians. We've been in the book of Ephesians during Lent and made the decision to keep going and finish the book after Easter. So I'd I'd invite you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We have some ushers with Bibles at the back. And if you do not have a Bible with you and you'd like one, just raise your hand as I am doing because I left my Bible downstairs in my office. Not accustomed to having an office where you actually have to like take things with you instead of just taking your bag everywhere you go, a mobile office. Um, So Ephesians chapter 6, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take this with you tonight. Um, If you do have a Bible, you just want to borrow it, leave it on your seats And turn it to chapter 6. We'll read from there in just a moment. Um, But I wanted to let you know why we made the decision to just uh, continue. Ephesians chapter 6 is not usually um, 
Eastertide passages. It's not what we read in the weeks after Easter. But all throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul has been teaching us, elaborating and instructing and encouraging us in what this new resurrection way of life is all about. Um, and I think we can, um, we can be kind of swept into this um, experience of life, as even as Julie was talking about, that we are accustomed to kind of the movie ending, where there's a, a beautiful, slow climax, and the end of the movie just ends on a high note, and everyone rides off into the sun together, and the couple kisses, and they get married, and the lost dog is found, and all of the good things happen, and it, then it ends. And uh, what we find, actually, is that um, life doesn't end. It keeps going. And it's really good, but it's not over. And so I think we could also come to this conclusion that as a congregation, we've arrived on 8th Street, and now it's just our time to drift off into the sunset. And really, we haven't come to a triumphant arrival, although it has been one. We have actually gotten to the start line. <laughs> we are beginning again. And so we need to remember all that we've already heard from Ephesians chapter 1 through 5, that we have been adopted into a really good family and that that adoption comes with a destiny, that we have been brought into a story that is already ongoing. We've got places to go and we've been given something to do. And part of that has to do with the fact that we no longer live in hostility with one another because this God who has adopted us has broken down and continues to break down barriers between people. And so as we are swept up into this Trinity's dance, we are unified with one another, and we also become part of the unifying force that God uses to unify us all. God's immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine is actually happening among us, Paul says. And all of this is going somewhere. It's taking us someplace. We are growing up into maturity and becoming the full-grown church at her best so that we are looking and talking and acting like Jesus to continue his mission on earth. And as we are recipients of Jesus' resurrection life, we come awake. We blink our eyes open into the, the sunlight and we are invited to practice this resurrection in small ways, mostly, in relationships with parents and spouses, children, coworkers, friends, even the difficult people in our lives. And so we learn and we practice to submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. This is Ephesians in a nutshell. And today we're at Ephesians chapter 6. And Paul reminds us right here at the end, almost his concluding words to his friends in Ephesus, that practicing resurrection is all of that, but it also requires some fortitude. So would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18? A final word, be strong 
in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting the belt of truth and the body of armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and so we can say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. For many of us who have heard this passage before, hearing about unseen authorities of darkness and this spiritual armor of God we are to wear may conjure up some memories uh, of Carmen, perhaps, or um, some really intense uh, sermons or youth group events, maybe uh, movies that we've watched. And for many of us, this passage may invoke memories of fear or skepticism. And for those of us in this room who automatically cringe in fear or roll our eyes in speculation that this really is as bad as it all that, I want us to pay careful attention that Paul doesn't change tone here. This is the same Paul that we've been hearing from for weeks now in all of Ephesians. Often when we hear about this passage, it's not really in direct connection with everything else that he's saying here, and so we can hear a different mode or a different tone of voice than what he's actually communicating with. But it's important that we notice what he doesn't do here. He doesn't launch into tactical strategy or give a how-to lesson on using new weaponry that we find in the resurrected life. He doesn't provide us a list of the bad guys with dehumanizing name-calling included. And he doesn't whip us up into a frenzy with fear-laden rhetoric. But, just as important, we need to recognize that he also doesn't sidestep the issue of evil. He doesn't shrug it off. He doesn't laugh off the idea that there is actually an enemy, as if it were some crackpot conspiracy theory. Paul is always surprising us, Uh, I think because he's a close follower of Jesus, and Jesus always surprises us. Because he doesn't showcase any of the typical responses to evil that we usually see. Uh, I think we are accustomed to seeing evil as, uh, or accustomed to seeing several different responses to evil. And one is that um, we're just unwilling to accept that it's that bad. In every uh, World War II Holocaust movie, there's usually a character or a set of characters who is really kind of the um, naive, optimistic person 
who's saying, Germany is not going to get that bad. Uh, they're they're going to let us out. It's not that problem. If you think through the, the stories, that you, you can pinpoint those characters. And I think that is one of the ways that we respond. We don't want to believe that there is an enemy as bad as all that. We don't want to believe that the stakes are as high. We don't want to believe that the world can be dangerous for us. One of uh, our, uh, one of the uh, a French philosopher, Bouladere, said very famously that the devil's first trick is to convince us that he doesn't exist. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that and realizing that even the denial of evil itself is playing into his hand. So there's another way that we often respond to evil, and and that's kind of the other side of the spectrum. Um, Or there's two options on the other side of the spectrum, I should say. There's the, the people who say it doesn't exist, it's not that bad, deny and distract is their strategy. And then on the other end, there are crusaders and panickers. Crusaders, I think we can all probably have an idea of who they are. And we may have people that come to mind when we hear the term. Uh, Crusaders are not afraid of naming and even vilifying the suspected enemies and occasionally slipping into naming and vilifying the flesh and blood kind of enemies and not just the not flesh and blood kind of enemies. And many in their crusade against evil uh, wage these wars against... um, against their enemies, and, and they fall into the trap of evil itself many times because they pick up weapons that don't belong to us, and they use combative and violent and domineering and even dehumanizing methods in this battle. Uh, crusaders often will say things like, well, the ends justify the means, and the thing that we're fighting for is good enough so that we can use whatever means available to us to win this war. And rather than following the cruciform pattern that Jesus left for us, the pattern that looks like self-sacrifice and nonviolence and non-combative and non-domineering, we, when we take on the practice of crusaders, end up calling in the intimidating principalities and powers as allies. And evil cannot be overcome that way. And then there's another response to evil that we often see, and that is the paranoia. (laughs) That's the panic. That's the demons and devils everywhere approach. And, uh, and, and it kind of can, can tend toward not just fearful, but also slightly superstitious. Uh, never quite sure what will do the trick to fend off this always present, all-powerful evil one that is in our midst, and you can't quite name it, and you can't quite see it, and you just know that it's bad. Well, that's a really scary way to live. And the tactics of fear... <laughs> aren't a part of our weaponry either. The tactics of fear have no place in the church to motivate a life of trust in God 
or a life of love for neighbor. And so, yes, evil is present, but resurrection life has already proved that evil is actually not the most powerful force, and that it is not to be feared. And so, even though we are accustomed to seeing denial or crusading or paranoia, Paul gives us a very different approach in the face of evil. And his way, he says, is to stand firm. It's odd, this response to evil. It's not running away from it. It's not running into it. It's not cowering in fear, but it's also not yelling a battle cry and charging ahead into it. The image that Paul gives is one of confidence, alertness, preparedness, self-assuredness, or really, maybe not self-assuredness, but assurance in what we have been given. Some of you may know a researcher and author, speaker, Brene Brown. She has done a lot of uh, research and writing on shame and vulnerability and the power that we can find in vulnerability. And she shares that she uses a mantra for herself when she feels intimidated. It's a mantra that she uses to remind herself to be fully present in her own skin and not try to be someone else. Some of you might know it and use it yourselves, and that is don't puff up and don't back down. Stand your sacred ground. And I think, I think Paul's words and Brene's mantra are really compatible. And this is why. I think Paul is telling us to stand this ground because where we stand is good. Where we stand is enough. We are recipients of resurrection life. The only force in all the cosmos which has ever proven more powerful than evil itself. And we don't stand alone. We're not just isolated out in a field somewhere standing this sacred ground. We have been called to stand next to Jesus himself and alongside one another. We stand in a place where love is the most important and actually the most powerful thing. We stand in a place where there are no more barriers, and so all humans are equally loved, equally gifted, and equally received as family. And in this new resurrection life, we now stand, as we said earlier, as people of peace, people of reconciliation, and people of love. But this good place that we stand is also not off in some distant land away from the rest of the world. We're still here on earth where there are forces of darkness at work that we can't fully see or fully understand. And those forces of darkness have not yet been fully put to death. Jesus gave us no promises that our life with him, with him would be free from difficulty. In fact, he said the opposite, if you remember. He said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have already overcome the world. 
And so this place that we now stand, where we are recipients of resurrection life, the future of God rushing into our present before the final resurrection actually happens, this, this place in the middle of the kingdom of God, which is already here but is still yet coming in its fullness, in this place, Jesus is with us. And so we can expect that even as we stand firm in resurrection life, even as we follow the dance of the triune God who leads us to break down barriers, even as we grow into maturity in Christ so that he, we can love as he does, and even as we refuse to participate in the old habits of devaluing life and seeking our own pleasure at whatever cost, even as we live in the freedom and joy of resurrection, yes, we will encounter evil. We will face authorities of darkness and resistance. And when we are moving in step with the God who is making all things new, we are bound to cross into territory where things are still old. And we are bound to cross people who like it the old way and forces and powers and structures and systems who rely on things happening the old way. And so Paul says, don't be surprised, but stand firm, be alert and ready. I think it's important that we realize Paul is not just talking about this individualized armor of God that we put on to deflect the temptations of the devil so that we might not sin. There's some of that there, but it's a much bigger picture. He's talking about an enemy that is interested in more than just getting you or I to do something that will make us feel guilty later, although that is part of the strategy. There is an unseen, wily, deceitful, scheming, cunning enemy. All of these are words that in the Greek uh, help us understand what Paul is saying about who our enemy is. And Jesus himself says that the devil is the father of lies, a thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. And so those things are pretty easy to spot, right? You can tell when something's being stolen or killed or something's actively trying to be destroyed. We can see death. We can see terror attacks and school shootings and civil war that tears nations apart. And we can see alienation that steals people from relationship. And we can see what shaming does and and isolation and despair and loneliness and shunning. We can see dehumanization also that comes to kill relationships with one another and destroy human lives while they are still living. Forces like racism and slavery, prostitution and prejudice and injustice and oppressive oppression, but also things like name-calling and being dismissive of a person who disagrees with us devaluing one way of life over another. 
all of these ways of evil are visible. They are ugly. And they must be resisted. And the armor of God that we are given in the resurrected life is enough for that task. But I think it's important that we know, too, that there are ways of evil that are less visible to us. There is a, a threat of an enemy who doesn't just come in with the thing that looks ugly, the thing that we would never participate in, the thing that we would fight against at all cost. But Paul is clear to say that we have an enemy who is good at deceiving us. And anyone who's a deceiver knows that you have to make something look good. And so Paul says, be alert and stand firm against the evil that doesn't even look all that evil. And again, this could be where we get into panic mode because it's challenging then. I mean, how do we, how do we identify who we are fighting against? How do we arm ourselves if we don't know where it's coming from? And how do we tell foe from friend? I think as part of resurrection life, as part of the armor of God, as part of keeping in step with this way of Jesus, we are invited into deeper and deeper process of discernment where we are not just reactive, where we are not just uh, labeling something as soon as it comes across our screen so then we can decide what to do with it. But where we weigh things, where we listen, where we discern, and the armor that we are given is part of that discernment process. We learn to figure out what's happening around us and even what's happening within us. And so we remember that in view of the threats that we can see and those that are harder to see, the resurrection life, this firm ground that we stand on is enough. Resurrection itself is defeat of evil. The highly visible and the subtle kind. And we are invited into this resurrection way of living where Jesus literally shares with us what he alone has. Truth. Righteousness. Peace. Faith. Salvation. And the word of God. It's important and significant that Paul starts with the belt of truth. It may be confusing for us because any of us who wear belts usually put that on last. But for a soldier in the Roman army, the belt was a wide piece of sturdy leather, almost like a weightlifting belt that you would use to 
gird yourself and help you stand up straight and protect your back and protect your abdomen. And you would attach other pieces of your armor to it. The belt of truth is our foundation. It's what we start with. And the truth is everything that we have talked about from here on up. This good place that we find ourselves in. That we are adopted and chosen and loved and unified. That we are recipients of great blessing and that we have a future with a purpose. And that we are made for more than the life we see around us. And then we are given the body armor of righteousness. Jesus' own living in good relationship with God and neighborness that covers us and that grows in us. And then just in case we didn't know that Paul was not speaking literally, we are outfitted with shoes of peace, which are not exactly what you want to send a soldier into battle with. Um, And so we are called into this active duty, but it's a very different kind of active duty than what we're familiar with. We are outfitted with the kinds of shoes that perfectly allow us to dance and keep in rhythm with the spirit who knocks down walls of hostility all around us. And so Paul says, we have shoes of peace. We have a faith as shield, not an intellectual uh, knowledge faith, but faith as relationship, faith as Jesus standing with us, and then the salvation as helmet. Again, salvation not as ticket into heaven, but salvation as uh, this whole complete package of life with God and life victorious over the powers of sin and death in the world. And this is our defense and our identity. And then the only weapon we are given is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The story that God has given us, that we rehearse and we memorize and we immerse ourselves in so that we are grounded in reality and so that we may be able to discern what is real and what is not, what is good and what is evil. But I think an uncomfortable truth has to be mentioned here. And that is that this armor of the resurrected life actually has no weaponry. I mean, even our sword isn't a sword. It's words. A soldier outfitted in Paul's day would have carried any number of combination of weapons, swords and daggers and bows and arrows and clubs and whips, and just as our soldiers today carry all kinds of guns and grenades. These weapons are designed with purpose, both then and now, to inflict injury and to kill the bodies they are fighting. And so in all the amazing gifts of resurrection... Wouldn't you think that we would be given a really great weapon? Something to really do in the bad guys? Something that would do even more harm than the weapons they have? Something that would kill even more people than the weapons they use? 
yeah, your faces <laughs> tell the story. It doesn't work. It doesn't fit. The resurrection life is not a life of armament. It's not a life of who can kill more bad guys. And Paul says clearly anyway, you're not fighting flesh and blood bad guys. There's something more going on. And the weapons that you need to fight this battle don't look like the weapons other people fight with. In fact, in this great cosmic battle, if we would call it that, the continuing uh, story of God's kingdom coming into places where it has not yet come, we are the weapons. The people who are putting on the resurrection life the people who are wearing on their bodies and in their persons the gifts of faith and peace and righteousness and salvation and the spirit of the everlasting living God, those people, we who live the resurrection life on a regular basis are the weapons against the evil one. Resurrection life itself has already defeated the enemy. And this is what we are given. This is what we receive. This is what we put on. This is what we clothe ourselves in. And this is what we immerse ourselves with. The resurrected person of Jesus sharing what only he has freely with us. And then in all of that, when we stand firm in all that we have been given, Paul says, the only battle plan I have to offer you is that you pray. Pray always. And in every situation, Keep on praying and pray for all the saints because we're all in the same place. And prayer is not anything magic. It is conversation. It is conversation with the God who is standing firm alongside of us. And it is conversation with and about this company of saints who stands with us. And so we pray, we ask for help. We ask that God enable us to do what only he can do. We ask that God do for those around us what only God can do. And we ask that God who sees the enemy that we cannot see would teach us, would lead us, would protect us from the evil one. For us, gathered on the corners of 8th and Lee now, it's important 
that we stand firm. It's important that we remember and we fully utilize and we put on all of the gifts of resurrection that have been given to us. A year ago during Easter, we took time to tell and hear one another's Eighth Street dreams. If you were here with us at that time, you remember we, we were dreaming about what it would be like to be here. We were dreaming about not just a building with beautiful stained glass and seats and places for our kids to play and do baby showers downstairs, but we were dreaming about what a congregation on 8th Street might be doing on 8th Street. We were dreaming about the kinds of relationships and the kinds of care that we could involve ourselves in. We were dreaming about people who would come and find food and belonging. We were dreaming about a resurrected building who would tell a resurrection story to the broken down lives and hopeless people who are watching. And I think it's really important for us to know that now that we're here, like I said, we're, we're only at the beginning. And if we are to realize the beautiful God-given dreams that we have together on 8th Street, it will only be because we stand firm. It will only be because we remember and use the gifts of resurrection life that we have been given. And we can know that as we move into our 8th Street dreams and enacting and doing and being the kind of people we want to be on 8th Street, we will need to stand firm. Resistance will come. Opposition is there. We will have trouble in this world. But the resurrected king is resurrecting us and has given us everything we need for the task ahead. And so we come to Jesus' table where we are recipients of all that he has to give us. And when we realize that this armor of God is fully comprised in Jesus himself, that Jesus is our truth, that Jesus is our righteousness, that Jesus is our salvation and our peace, and Jesus is the word of God. We come and we receive him. And we don't just put on things as if it's an external set of clothes that we could take on or take off, but we ingest. We metabolize. We 
are transformed into a new way of being and living that is resurrection life. And so in just a moment, you'll come forward through this center aisle, and I would ask you to come with your hands cupped to receive the bread, which is the body of Christ, and to dip it into the cup, which is the juice, the blood of Christ. And because we want no barriers here, we want you to know that our cup is non-alcoholic and our bread is gluten-free, so that anyone and everyone who wants to come and receive Christ, you are free to do so. So on the night before Jesus was betrayed by those he came to save, he sat with his friends and he ate a meal with them and he broke bread and he passed it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And likewise, he took the cup and he drank of it and he passed it and he said, this is my blood It is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins and a sign of the new covenant. Take and drink with joy. This is our invitation tonight, my friends. After I pray for us, as you are ready, please come. Lord Jesus, as we come to your table, we ask that we would receive all that we need from you. We pray, Lord, that you would give us courage to stand firm on the good ground where you have placed us. We ask that you would remind us of all that is true. We ask that you would lead us into maturity and discernment. And we ask that you would keep us victorious as we march, as we walk, as we live, as we love, as we teach alongside of you in resurrection life. This is what we ask in Jesus' name. Come, friends, when you are ready.